I want to start with a quiz this morning. This is not a difficult one, and you don't have to worry about passing or failing or anything like that, all right? How many of you have got at least one difficult person in your life? How many of you have got at least one difficult person in your life? All right. Hopefully they are not the person that you are sitting next to right now, okay? <laughs> now, most of us probably have got more than one difficult person in our lives, but all of us have got at least one of those difficult people in our life. And most of us probably try to play an avoidance game with that person. Uh, you know, you, if, you, if you have to work with them, if you see them coming down the hallway, you try to, you know, duck into the bathroom or find the closest broom closet or whatever it is to get away from them. But that's usually what we do with those difficult people. We try to avoid them. Now, if they're in your family, uh, you go to the family get-togethers and you just try to, you know, if they're in one room, you try to go to the father end of the hall and let them stay on the other side of the, the house or whatever keep your distance from them. But the Bible says, interestingly enough, in Romans 12, that He wants us to connect with the difficult people in our lives. So the Lord tells us, as so often He does, to do the exact opposite of what we feel comfortable with and what we naturally want to do. How in the world do we connect with difficult people and with people in general? Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. The Apostle Paul, as we've seen, is a writer here. He's writing to Christians living in the city of Rome. Now, at the time that the Apostle Paul writes to these Christians in the city of Rome, they are going through a very difficult period of time. They live across the river from the city in the poor section of Rome, sort of in an ancient version of public housing. They had great big, huge apartments that were not built very well. They were known to be liable for collapse, and they are living in those apartments in, in pretty bad poverty. They are being oppressed from several perspectives. Number one, if you were a Christian in those days, a follower of Jesus Christ, you were by far in the minority. People looked down on you, and they often boycotted your businesses. They treated you pretty rough. And so they are under an oppression for, number one, being a Christian. Secondly, most of them, as I said, were poor. And so they were struggling with all the aspects of poverty and living under oppression in poverty. And so in the middle of all of this and what they're going through, the Apostle Paul writes to them in Romans chapter 12, and he spends the first part of Romans laying a doctrinal basis of what it means to be a follower of Christ and how we come to follow Jesus. And in Romans chapter 12, he begins to move to that extreme, strong, practical application. And he says, this is what genuine, authentic Christianity looks like and sounds like. As I said to you last week, we tend to put a lot of emphasis on how people start following Jesus. And we talk about joining the church and being baptized and trusting Christ as your Savior. And we talk about how to get started right, but so often what we do is we don't put a whole lot of emphasis on what you do after you get started right. How do you continue right? And Romans chapter 12 is all about how you continue right. And so he says in verse 1 that we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord, using the energy that God gives us to know Jesus, to love Jesus, and to follow Him. And then he moves in the 
verses that follow verse 1 into how this gets played out in our lives. And what I want to cue on is verse 13 from what we looked at last week. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints, that is, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. How do you contribute to their needs? Well, we got to be in touch with what their needs are. And as I'm in touch with their needs, then I can contribute to those needs. And then he says, seek to show hospitality. And we show that the, saw last week that the word show there means to pursue, like you're hunting and you're going after something. And he says, I want you to pursue folks, to show them hospitality, to meet them where they are in life, to help them out. The word there, hospitality, literally is the idea of going, pursuing after strangers. And so what Paul is saying is, I want you to pursue, to run after folks that you don't know or that are different from you, that you don't understand, that may seem even weird to you. I want you to pursue those folks. I want you to go after those folks. And I want you to just be a friend to them and join them in the journey of life. Now, building on that, he moves in to the next instructions, beginning with verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. How do we respond to the difficult people? My sermon outline is containing your bulletin, if you follow along with me. He says, bless them. Bless those who persecute you. The Bible says, Timothy, all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. He doesn't say they might suffer persecution. He says you are going to suffer persecution. That is a promise of God. As much as all the other promises of God that are in Scripture, that is a promise of God. So the Lord is promising us that we're going to have some difficult people in our lives. He's promising us that we're going to have to find ways to deal with the difficult people. And He's saying, I want you to bless those difficult people who give you a rough time. Folks... God is not in the business of making your dreams come true. God is not in the business of making our dreams come true. I know it sounds nice to say that, and I wish I could stand up here and preach it, but I wouldn't be true to the Word of God if I did. God is in the business not of making our dreams come true. He is in the business of shaping our lives where we live to bring honor to Him. And He is in the business of shaping our lives to be like Jesus. Now, when our dream for life is to be like Jesus and to bring glory to Him, then the dreams will start coming true. And you see, persecution is one of the instruments that God uses to shape us and to mold us to be like Jesus. Persecution is one of the ways that He gets glory from our lives. And often the way that He gets glory from our lives is not a way that we would necessarily choose or enjoy. 
Remember what Jesus prayed from the cross. As he looked on the folks who were spitting on him and cursing him and driving nails into his hand, he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. And you see, what he wants to form and shape in us is a spirit, an attitude, a mindset that says the same thing. Lord, you give me the strength and empower me to forgive those who were coming after me, who were trying to do me in. Now, one of the reasons that the Lord gives you and I the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to shape and mold within us an attitude, a disposition of forgiveness, of being able to bless the folks who are persecuting us. And when we go through those times and we have to deal with those difficult people, what we're supposed to do is say, Lord, by the power of the Spirit that you have given me, enable me to bless them. Now, who are the folks who are going to be persecuting us? Well, let me give you three ideas, those difficult people. Number one, there are people outside our lives. There are people that we're going to come in contact one way or another with, and sometimes we don't even come in contact with them directly. But they have no use for followers of the Lord Jesus. Number two, sometimes some of the most difficult people we deal with are people within the church. Now, we don't want to say that or think that, but let's be honest. Sometimes difficult people are members of the body of Christ that we find ourselves dealing with. Third, they can be family members and friends. Family members can often be some of the most difficult people to deal with. And so family and friends can fall into that. And one of the most popular forms today of persecution or dealing with difficult people is cyberbullying. Because people can get on the internet and go after folks with little to no accountability. And that's bad enough, but cyberbullying pretty much always assures that you've got an audience when you do it. So if I'm going to cyberbully somebody, not only can I nail them and they really can't respond back much unless they respond back through cyberspace, but I also am able to have an instant audience a pretty big audience if I choose to, to do the cyberbullying with. And so the cyberbullying gets really difficult because if you are the subject of cyberbullying, you feel helpless to deal with it. You, got, you realize that the person that's bullying you has got a huge audience and you feel like you don't have much of a platform to defend yourself against. And that's one of the biggest forms that persecution and dealing with difficult people takes today. When people attack us, they attack out of their pain and they attack out of their own confusion. And when Jesus says for us to bless them, I think he's trying to say, get in touch with their pain and try to understand why they are the way that they are. And that requires that I've got to get out of touch with my pain so that I can try to understand where they are coming from. Because you see, the more I'm in touch with me and the more that I'm focusing on what I'm feeling and what I'm going through, the less I can focus on them. What do most of us do when we get hurt by somebody? We tend to in, go inward focus and focus, well, that wasn't fair, and that hurt me, and that angered me, etc. Instead of saying, why do they do that? What's going on in their lives that causes them to be like that? And notice verse 14. He says, don't curse them. Now, when we think of cursing, we usually think of using, you know, some specific words uh, that are packed with meaning, but that's not the idea of the word curse here. The word curse here is the idea of uttering out 
tough things towards people because of bad vibes that we've got towards them. The idea of cursing someone here is to wish evil against them. So this idea of cursing them is not that I'm, as we like to say, cussing somebody out. It's the idea that I look at somebody and deep down inside of me, I really hope some bad things happen to them. In fact, if there's anything I can do in life to facilitate some bad things happening to them, then I'm going to do that. It's the idea that every time I look at them, basically I send bad vibes in their direction. And to some degree that's intentional because I want them to sense that I'm sending bad vibes in their direction. It's enjoying watching bad things happen to them. Well, they're getting what they deserve. And folks, when we curse someone like that, we never do it one time. We just keep doing it, and we keep doing it, and we keep doing it. It becomes almost a habit or a lifestyle for us. Every time we think about them, every time we see them, every time we're going to bump into them, we start sending out the bad vibes. We start hoping for the bad stuff to happen to them. You ever heard of somebody praying against somebody? That's sort of the idea. I'm praying that the Lord will just sort of nuke them or take them out. Now, don't y'all sit there and look so spiritual at me that you have never thought about doing that, all right? I'm not the only one in this room that's ever prayed against somebody, all right? Lord, if you could just sort of push them aside or eliminate them, that would really be, you know, no, I wouldn't be involved in it, Lord. It'd be all responsibility on your shoulders, but I wouldn't hurt, you know, if you do that. That's that idea. And when we get into that mode, we just continue in that mode. Now, notice what he says here. He says, I want you to bless them. That's how we connect to them. Now, what does it mean to bless somebody? It's an interesting word there. The word bless in the Greek language is that where we get our English word eulogize from, which means to speak well of somebody. The Hebrew idea of this word is to ask and to call upon God to bestow His favor on somebody else. When I bless somebody... I'm saying, Lord, I want to ask you to show them favor. I want to ask you to, Lord, bless them. I want to ask you to step into their lives and do something good for them. Not because I feel like it. Not because I necessarily want it on the inside. But because that is what honors Jesus. And that blessing will help them get closer to Jesus. You see the, what, what God's trying to form in us here. That I'm looking at the people that are giving me a rough time, and instead of me saying, Lord, would you just take them out? I'm saying, Lord, draw them to yourself, and God, whatever you can do in their lives to help draw them to yourself, God, would you do that? God, would you show them favor? Martin Luther who was the founder of the Protestant Reformation, which this month we celebrate the anniversary of, had a time in his life when he was standing for the faith and he had to go stand before what was called the Diet of Worms and, 
And basically, they laid out everything that he had written and he had said about what it meant to follow Christ and what salvation was about. And they told him, you've got to recant all of this. And, and Luther began to think, and he knew it was coming. He said, could you give me a few hours to think about it? And they said, yes. And Luther thought about it. He came back in. He stood before that council. And it was one of those moments in history I'd love to have been a fly on the wall. He stood before that council of folks, of the religious leaders of Germany, and he said, this is where I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Well, Luther's friends knew when he said that, that his life was on the line. And when Luther left that diet and went out and began going to the countryside, his friends literally kidnapped him and they put him in a castle tower for the protection of his own life. In fact, the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, was the hymn that he wrote up there in that tower. But this is what Luther said, the kingdom of God is to be in the midst of your enemies. The kingdom of God is to be in the midst of your enemies. I love that. The kingdom of God is to be in the midst of your enemies. We think of the kingdom of God just being in the nice places. He's saying, no, the kingdom of God is to be known and to be realized and to be experienced right in the middle of where your enemies are. Listen, the power of God is good for anything. The power of God ought to be good for when we're in our toughest situations. When Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, what Jesus is saying is the kingdom is not off in heaven somewhere. The kingdom is right here on this hill in the midst of my blood being poured out in the sweat and everything that I'm going through. And the kingdom is in the forgiveness that I'm extending to these folks right now. The kingdom is in the midst of our enemies. Now, how do we bless people? Number one, as I said earlier, Pray for them and ask the Spirit of God to direct us as we pray for them. Number two, seek to understand their story. Where are they coming from? What pain or hurt or confusion are they acting out of that's causing them to act the way they're acting? And then pray for God's desire in their life. What does God desire for them? What does God desire to do in their lives? And when you do that, God's going to take you to a place of inner healing. You see, as long as I'm focused on people in anger and bitterness, I'm not getting healed up on the inside. But when I begin to see someone as Jesus sees them and begin to pray and intercede for them as He would have me to and ask that, Lord, the primary thing here is that you be honored and glorified God begins to work healing inside of me. Folks, there are a lot of Christian people that spend years of their lives walking around, bleeding on the inside and not getting healed because they will not let go of anger and bitterness and unforgiveness. And when I begin to pray for folks the way He wants me to pray for them, God begins to work healing inside of me. He begins to put us back together. He begins to heal us. And often we need the healing first and more than the people that are giving us a rough time. Now notice what he says in verse 15. He says, I want you to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Sometimes it's more difficult to rejoice with those who are rejoicing than it is to weep with those who need us to weep with them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. The idea here is when we rejoice with people, it energizes us, it grows us. And when we rejoice with people, we accept with what God's doing in their life and we rejoice with them in it. We're excited about what God's doing in their life, but it also means that I'm accepting what God is doing in my life. Now, do you know how rejoicing sometimes can be difficult? When somebody is getting something or getting to a place in life or obtaining something in life that we really want and it hadn't come our way yet, but it's come their way, man, it's hard to rejoice with them. Particularly at that place in life or that something that they got is what we wanted or we thought we had earned and should be coming our way. And we've got to rejoice with them. Let me just share a few experiences from my journey in that. I don't know if it'll identify with you or not, but when I, we were living in Galax, I was pastoring First Baptist there. Uh, our son at the time was probably about four or five years of age. And we were wanting to have a second child. And we're not having a second child. And my children's minister, young couple in our congregation, they had two boys, and I remember the day that she came into staff meeting and announced that they were having their third child. And then they walked into the fellowship hall that night at the church and announced they were having their third child. And everybody's clapping and applauding, and they were all excited about the fact they were having the third child. And I remember standing in that fellowship hall thinking, we've got one child, and we really want another, and we can't seem to have a second child, and they're all excited, and everybody's celebrating to have their third child, and I was having a hard time getting excited for them. And there was a part of me like, God, how can they have three, and we only got one? I pastored good folks over the years. I had, a, at the same time when I was there, I had a minister of music, wonderful Chris and Sharon with just outstanding folks. They wanted a child so bad they couldn't see straight and could not have a child. And you've got another staff member expecting the third child. How do you rejoice in a situation like that? How do you live out rejoice with those who rejoice? That's where rejoicing can come into life and it can be very difficult to rejoice with those who rejoice. Years later with our son... Uh, and I've shared some of this with you when I first came here, we began to discover that Jonathan uh, was having a lot of difficulty in school, and we thought at first it was just the intensity of the SOLs. Uh, but the difficulty continued, and the uh, teachers came to us and said, we want to put him on an IEP, an individual education program, and we started going through that process every year. And Jonathan was struggling in his grades. I mean, if, if we got report cards that he was passing, we were you know, ecstatic. The A and B issue wasn't even on the radar screen too much. It was just that we could get, get him to pass a, a class. We were happy. And I can remember back in those days, they had bumper stickers that said, my child is a honor roll student at such and such school. Do you ever remember those bumper stickers? I don't know if they had them in this part of the state or not. I developed a hatred for those bumper stickers. 
I can remember coming up to intersections and stopping and looking at the car in front of me with this sign. My child is an honor roll student, and the thoughts that went through my brain was, I want to get out of my car and beat up your honor roll student. In fact, there was a bumper sticker that came out that said, my child beat up your honor roll. And I, when I saw that honor roll sticker, I just wanted to shout hallelujah. Somebody finally put a bumper sticker together that I like. I want to get one of them and put them on my car, you know. It's real nice, you know, pastors change his son to beat up the other kids in class. And I was having a really difficult time rejoicing with those folks at how good their kids were doing. You know, and I'd have to stand there and listen as a pastor. You know, they'd come up to me, oh, my child's making A's, and my child is doing this, and my child's on the honor roll. I was like, I'm so sick of hearing about your child. I don't know what to do, but I, I just smile. God bless you. That's so wonderful. You know, et cetera. So what do you do in this rejoice business when it's so difficult. I want you to think about something. Jesus was a single adult and he went to the marriage at Cana and blessed them. Can you imagine how difficult that must have been for him? As a single adult, you say, well, he was the son of God and all that. Yeah, but the Bible says he was tempted at all points like as we are yet without sin. Can you imagine the loneliness he must have felt? Watching someone of his own age generation get married and everybody's celebrating and they're probably all wondering, why is he single? Why is he still single? He's in his 30s. Shouldn't he be getting married? What's his problem? So when he says here, rejoice with those who rejoice, I think what he's saying is, I want to take you to the place when you do that, that you are able to rejoice with what God is doing in somebody else's life and accept what he's doing in their life and at the same time, Walk into the peace that God has for you and accept the place that God has for you in your life. Folks, when we get there, we're going to have satisfaction, we're going to have peace, we're going to have wholeness. One of the things that God taught us with our son is that years later I was serving as president of the PTA at Oscar Smith High School in Chesapeake. And I was able to stand before an auditorium full of folks at the beginning of the school year and share Jonathan's story, but also share how he had come through that and worked through that, eventually was able to start succeeding academically, but to say, hey, I know where you're coming from. And God used what we discover later to be dyslexia that he had to help us connect and help him connect with people who were struggling like that. And as a pastor, it gave me a whole new feeling and appreciation for the folks that I pastored over the years whose children were struggling with issues like that. So God's going to help you get to that place of rejoicing. Now notice what he says next. He says, weep with those who weep. That means we've got to slow down and we've got to join people in their grief. Remember how Jesus didn't run by the grave of Lazarus? He didn't walk up to Lazarus' grave and say, hey, I can raise him from the dead, no big deal here. He stopped and cried. The Son of God sharing that moment with them. Love's greatest expression comes at the place of its greatest inconvenience. Love's greatest expression will come at the place of its greatest inconvenience. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian and a leader of the Christian movement in Germany leading up to and during the Second World War. He was eventually arrested by the Nazis and executed by them. 
Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Life Together, and what it means for us to walk this journey together as believers of Christ. And I want to share a quote with you, and I'm going to read it twice. The Christian, however, must bear the burden of a brother. He must suffer and endure the brother. It is only when he is a burden, that is, the brother in Christ, that another person is really a brother and not merely an object to be manipulated. The Christian, however, must bear the burden of a brother. He must suffer and endure the brother. It is only when he is a burden that another person is really a brother and not merely an object to be manipulated. What's Bonhoeffer saying? He's saying that until I get to the place that I'm able to look at my brothers and sisters in Christ and say, your burden is going to become my burden, and I will join you in the journey of life, and I'll wrestle and struggle with you and whatever you're going through. Until I'm willing to get to that place, my tendency is to look at you and figure out how I can manipulate you to get out of you what I want. Think about that. And it is so easy to use people without even realizing that we're using people. So we feel successful or we feel loved or we feel popular or they can do something for us. But he says, when I look at a brother and sister in Christ and take on their burden and enter into their struggle with them, that then I really see them as a brother or a sister in Christ, not as just somebody there to be manipulated. And rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep take us to that place. It's the place of being like Jesus. In 1976, in Spokane, Washington, the Special Olympics were held. It was a track and field event. A group of folks, whether they were physically handicapped or mentally handicapped, lined up for a race. And when the gun was fired, they began to run as best they could. As they began to run, one young boy fell down. The rest of the group, about eight or nine, looked back and saw this young boy on the ground. About two of the folks of his fellow Special Olympic runners stopped their race and walked back to him and picked him up. And together, they crossed the finish line. You see, for the ones who stopped and walked back and picked him up, the issue was not finishing the race. It was finishing the race together. And that's what Paul's talking about here. It's not that we finish the race. It's that we finish the race together. And that when somebody falls down, we don't just look at them and say, well, too bad. We don't look at them and say, well, you're getting what you deserve. We don't look at them and say, well, that means that I'm going to beat you. We go back and say, listen, 
I'm going to pick you up and we'll finish this thing, but we will finish it together. When we live like that, we're living Romans 12, and when we live like that, we are living like Jesus wants us to live. And folks, when we live like that, people look at us and they say, if that's what Jesus does in somebody's life, I think I want to follow him. Let's pray. Lord, help us in the race of life not to focus on whether we beat other people or whether we leave them in the dirt or whether they get what they deserve. But God, help us to focus on stopping our race, slowing down, walking back to them and saying, hey, let's cross this line, finish line together. Lord, teach us to be like you and to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. God, teach us to bless the difficult people in our lives. Lord, empower us to be able to sincerely from our hearts say, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus, help me to forgive them and pray for them to know your touch and your blessing. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, this morning the invitation is going to be several fold. First of all, it's going to be for those who are here who, of course, as always, if you need to trust Jesus and follow Jesus and fall in love with Jesus, we want to ask you and give you an opportunity to walk the aisle here. I'd love to pray with you about choosing to follow Jesus and serve Him. If you feel this is a church that God's calling you to be a part of, and we invite you to come and join here with us as we serve the Lord together. And also today, if you're here, and you need to spend some time with God during this invitation, saying, Lord, I need to forgive. Lord, I need to weep with someone, rejoice with someone. Lord, there's a difficult person in my life and I've been letting my feelings of anger and frustration and unforgiveness towards them basically beginning to take over all of my life. God, I want to ask you to deliver me from that. And God, I want to pray a blessing upon them that I want to encourage you as we sing, just spend some time alone with the Lord there in the pew and ask Him to take you to the place where you can pray His blessing upon them. The altar is open.